Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. This audio is brought to you by Canon Press. This week, you will hear Christine Cohen's Winter King. If you'd like to hear the rest of the novel, you can find it exclusively on the Canon app. The Winter King by Christine Cohen. Read by the author. Chapter 1 The temple stood empty at the edge of the village, encircled by a crown of aspens. The villagers, when they had to pass by, cast anxious glances at the carved figures, arching like serpents from the eaves. Even the magpies, whose dome nests filled the crooked boughs of the nearby trees, avoided the ancient structure. In the twilight, long shadows crept along the wide shingles, lingering well after daybreak. Deep within the temple, tucked away like a glowing seed in a hollow shell, was an empty wooden throne. Cora couldn't see the temple as she crossed the crowded village square, but she could feel it. The temple was waiting, just like the rest of them. Tomorrow, the Winter King would return to Hrimsby, slipping into human form like a banner unfurled, and the village teemed with preparations. Cora passed hopeful merchants hawking their goods from canopied stalls, harried women buying last-minute supplies, and children twirling sticks twined with green and gray ribbons, the Winter King's colors. The town spared no expense to welcome their god. And he doesn't care about any of it, Cora thought. He cares for nothing but himself. The late autumn rain had turned the village square into a squalid mess, and Cora flinched as a young boy ran past, splashing mud on the hem of her linen shift. It felt like a reprimand for her dark thoughts, or perhaps for delaying when her mother had sent her to buy more time for the winter's feast. The early morning mists had all but disappeared. She pictured her mother hovering in High Alderman Theodore's kitchens, waiting and worrying. Cora pushed her way through the crowd, narrowly dodging a bundling herd of pigs. Skirting around the stables, she hurried up the wide road toward the High Alderman's vast stone house and her waiting mother. Her fingers tightened around the soapstone jar that held the dried herb. The jar was barely half full, but it was all Abalone had, or claimed to have. Hopefully it would be enough. As head cook in Fyodor's kitchens, Cora's mother was wholly responsible for the feast. The food had to be perfect. Greta's position depended on it. And without her mother's wages, their family wouldn't survive the winter. Lost in the fears that churned like white caps in her mind, she didn't hear the footsteps behind her. Like everyone else, Cora kept her guard up when she walked near the woods. The flooded fens and knee-high willows were perfect hunting places for Draugar, the undead. But worry smothered her caution, and she didn't realize she'd been followed until a hand gripped her arm. Cora shrieked and spun around, throwing up her hands to protect herself. The jar slipped from her grasp and flew skyward, its polished sides glinting in the autumn sun. Cora reached for it helplessly, already knowing she was too late. Luckily, the boy behind her was a head taller and decidedly more agile. He brushed past her, his nimble fingers curling around the smooth stone and folding it to his chest. Peter! Cora grabbed for the jar, but the brown-haired boy dodged her easily. One hand held the time above his head, the other pointed at her. 
You promised you wouldn't pass the stables without saying hello. Cora snorted. I made that promise years ago. Promises don't shrivel up and die, Cora Nicholson. I said I'd throw a cat into Abalone's sleeping quarters every time she called you Draugarkin, and I haven't let you down yet, have I? Cora grimaced. You'll need to find another cat. She was still seething from her interaction with the shopkeeper's daughter. While many of the villagers regarded Cora warily, as if her family's curse might rub off on them, Abalone seemed to revel in her former friend's descent into poverty. Peter's smile faded. Again? Cora thought of the way Abalone's eyes had lingered on the stains and patches of her overdress, and her cheeks warmed. To add to the humiliation, Cora's clothes, her hands, even her hair reeked of onions. She shrugged. You'd think she could find a more original insult. Peter held out his hand. Come back to the stables. I've got a new straw figure for you. It's got a beard like Master Abelson's. Cora wished for the thousandth time that she could forget her duties and stay with Peter, sitting in the hay like they had as children, sharing flatbread topped with skier and sometimes wild berries, if they were lucky enough to find any. But the Winter King had made different plans for her family, and none of them had been kind. She shook her head. I can't, and I need that jar now. I'm already late. Peter's expression sobered, and his eyes moved over her face like he was examining a tapestry. Cora knew this look. He was reading her mood, calculating how upset she was. Quickly, she let go of her skirts and arranged her face into a smile. I'm fine. Peter raised his eyebrows. Very convincing. Cora sighed. I'm not trying to convince you. I'm asking you to give me back the only thing standing between my mother and a ruined feast. Oh, come now. Peter waved a dismissive hand. Her feasts are incredible. Everybody thinks so. Not all of the feasts, Cora thought. Because there had been one mistake, and there couldn't be another. High Alderman Theodore had made that very clear. Yes, thank the king and his eternally benevolent reign, Cora said in a high, mocking voice. Peter's eyes widened, and he took her arm, pulling her close. Careful, Cora. The king has sharp ears. Cora made an intense study of the mud beneath her shoes, unwilling to meet his eyes. Peter had sworn years ago that he'd keep her safe, that he wouldn't abandon her like the others had. Tight as a promise, you and I. But Cora had lived long enough to witness even the strongest promises snap under the strain of disagreement. Peter was blindly loyal to the Winter King, and on this issue they stood on opposite banks of an impassable river. The rift in their friendship was yet another gift from their beloved ruler. Then he already knows how I feel, Cora said. She pulled the jar free. And I suppose he doesn't care. Cora walked away with the spice jar held close to her chest. She could feel Peter watching her until the road curved gently around a copse of trees. As she rounded the final bend before the High Alderman's house, the wind picked up, carrying the sharp, salty smell of the sea. Primsby was surrounded by forests that stretched on three sides toward the ocean. On the fourth side, freshwater streams rushed down the mountains, 
splitting off like the veins on the back of her mother's hand before disappearing into the sea. After Winter's Day, the peddlers that crowded the market square would cross the mountains and return to the warm southern cities, before the snow on the pass isolated Rimsby. Before we're trapped here, Cora thought. A high arch and two sturdy wooden doors marked the servant's entrance to the High Alderman's house. As the chosen mediator between the God King and his people, Theodore lived in the largest house in Rimsby, and almost a quarter of the villagers worked for him. Cora pushed her way inside, past maids carrying wreaths and linens, and men hoisting stacks of kindling across their shoulders. The frenzy of preparations hadn't lessened in the kitchens, knives chopping in rapid unison, servants gossiping, and her mother issuing brisk orders in the midst of it all. She works twice as hard as everyone else, Cora thought with a swell of pride. Greta's eyes lit up with relief when Cora handed her the time. Thank the king. I found a bit in the back of the larder, but not enough for the final seasoning. Well done, Cora Quickfoot, she said. Cora's throat tightened. She wished her mother could see that she had grown up and out of the nickname her father gave her when she was little, running fast into his waiting arms. Greta hurried off, and Cora warmed her hands by the fire, savoring the moment of peace. The tension in her shoulders lifted slightly. She had averted disaster. Things were still under control. Cora! Edith, Greta's second cook, called to her from across the room. She was a small, efficient woman, and such a skilled baker that Theodore had insisted she leave her husband's store and come work for him. Her ringlets, tied up in a loose bun, were a darker version of her daughter Abalone's golden ones. Did Abalone find the time? Yes, Cora responded. Did you tell your daughter that I'm cursed? The words sat heavy on her tongue, threatening to tumble out, but she swallowed them back. I knew I'd saved some in the back. Edith paused and gave Cora an exasperated smile. Why are you standing there, child? There's a mountain of pots that need scrubbing. Edith turned away, and Cora reluctantly threw herself back into the flurry of preparations for the day she hated most of all. Chapter 2 Ten hours later, Cora untied her apron strings with hands trembling from exhaustion. Her head ached, and her feet felt like she'd walked barefoot on river rocks for miles. She couldn't remember if she'd sat down since the midday meal when she'd collapsed on a stool by the fire and stolen a few bites of bread and dried apples. Cora glanced at her mother. Greta's shoulders slumped forward as she counted the pastries for the third time. In the dim light of the dying fire, her eyes appeared to be closed. She probably hadn't eaten at all. Darkness had long since settled comfortably over Rimsby, and the town crier had called the dinner hour ages ago. From high in the watchtower, his voice carried across the village. Soon he would call out Notmal, the bedtime hour. Cora hoped they wouldn't still be at the High Alderman's house when he did. The winter curfew would begin tomorrow. No one would be allowed outside after Notmal, except with special permission. The risk of death from frostbite was too high, and the scarcity of small animals in the woods made the wolves bolder. Theodore had established the curfew years before, after three boys had died in a wolf attack. Mother, 
You counted that platter three times already, and I counted it twice, Cora said. There's enough, and the kitchen is clean. Please, can we go home? Greta looked up. The herb bunches hanging from the rafters hovered like dark wraiths above her head. Bits of her curly hair stuck out in strange directions. What? Oh, yes, all right. Let's go. They were putting on their wool cloaks when Greta paused, frowning. Footsteps echoed from the dark stairwell in the corner. Cora's fingers tightened on the clasp of her cloak. The upstairs staff rarely came into the kitchens this late, and guests of the High Alderman would call for a servant if they needed anything. She could only think of one person who might pay them a visit. Someone who looked for opportunities to catch Greta alone. And Cora dearly hoped the footsteps didn't belong to him. A small man with sharp black eyes and a thin mouth stepped out of the shadows. Cora's heart sank. They'd almost managed to avoid him. The man had a slow, measured stride, as if he considered the propriety of every step before he took it. His fingers tapped a gentle rhythm against his legs. Greta! The man's mouth knifed into a smile that promptly disappeared when he looked at Cora. And Cora. Greta dipped into a curtsy. Master House Steward, she murmured. As House Steward, Nils had a reputation for cruelty, and the servants beneath him did their best to stay out of his way. Cora had once seen him beat a maid who missed work to care for her sick child. The child had died anyway, and the maid's arms were permanently scarred. Nils fixed Cora with a stare until she curtsied as well. Then his eyes roamed the kitchen. Is everything in order for tomorrow? Greta nodded. It's all prepared. We were just leaving, Cora added. Nils' fingers twitched like an injured animal. And it looks like there's enough. He trailed off. Greta's lips worked soundlessly. She glanced at Cora, who nodded, willing her mother to be strong. I... I think so. Greta managed. Cora exhaled. There was plenty of proof. The sweet, yeasty smell curling off rows of freshly baked rolls. The piles of chopped carrots, yams, and onions. The plucked chicken stuffed with herbs and resting in the icebox. Greta had even secured a large shipment of sugar from a southern merchant and baked pastries filled with boysenberries. But Nils wasn't really looking for proof. He wanted to intimidate, to make Greta fear him or like him, or both. She's afraid enough. Leave us alone, Cora thought. Nils put a hand on Greta's arm. Oh, don't worry. I know you'll do your best for me. Cora balled her hands into fists. She hated Nils' temper. But even more than that, she hated the way he'd started to look at her mother after her father died. Has, has the High Alderman said something? Greta asked. No, no, of course not. He's confident that you'll create the perfect feast. As am I. Nils squeezed her arm and Cora tensed. I know you won't let what happened at midsummer happen again. Greta shook her head. I won't. After all, I vouched for you to Theodore, Nils continued. He was one of the few people who called the High Alderman by that name touting the familiarity like a prize. 
I persuaded him to keep you on. You won't be disappointed. Greta's voice was little more than a whisper. Nils huffed out a laugh, and a bitter whiff of wine stung Cora's nostrils. I'm glad to hear it. He released Greta and stepped away. Hurry home, he said, and his fingers resumed their tapping. You wouldn't want to tempt the wolves. Cora practically pulled her mother outside and down the road, sucking in the cold air like medicine. The further they got from the High Alderman's house, the easier she could breathe, and the less pressing the danger seemed. Nils loved to intimidate the staff, but Greta had been planning this feast for months. She had nothing to fear. The wind bit Cora's cheeks, and the few dry leaves that clung to the aspens rustled in the breeze. The sky was clear and freckled with stars. Cora tried to memorize them, to keep a picture in her mind for the coming months, when heavy clouds would drape a gray winter cloak over Rimsby. Cora cupped her hands around her mouth and breathed warmth into them. She could almost see the weight lying heavy between her mother's shoulders, pulling them towards the ground like the drooping branches of a willow. If Theodore was displeased by the food, if her mother lost her position as head cook, Cora forced herself not to think about what that would mean for their family, for her younger brothers and sister. Her father would have known the perfect thing to say to quell her mother's fears. But he was gone, and Cora had only inherited his amber eyes, not his comforting words. Everything will be fine, she said, and when her mother glanced up, she feigned an encouraging smile. I'm sure no head cook has put this much effort into a feast. The food is all in order. The king will be pleased. Greta sighed releasing the cloud of fear into the dark night, and straightened up. You're right, of course, she said. I have worked hard for our king. Theodore will see that. They crossed the village square, where a few merchants were still breaking down their booths. One man held out a bundle of green tassels to ward off evil spirits, but Greta waved him away. They could never afford them. The road wound past the wealthiest houses in Hermsby, each two stories high and made of stone with real glass windows. Beyond those homes were rows and rows of sturdy, half-timbered houses where most of the villagers lived, including Peter's family, the Svorensons. Peter's father was chief stableman, and his mother, Anna, worked from home, spinning flax into linen that she sold in Carl and Edith Harrelson's shop. Peter's three younger sisters helped their mother thresh the stalks and comb the flax before Anna spun it on her great wheel. As a particular kindness, Anna also watched Cora's twin brothers, Mark and Leif, and her younger sister Britta during the day. The Svorensons, at least, had not abandoned them. Cora and her family had once lived in the same row, in a clean, spacious house with a stream at the back and wild rose bushes bordering the yard. But a few years after her father died, after the high alderman had soured the town against her family, their savings ran out, and Greta was forced to move. The memories of her home made Cora ache for her old life. The longing for something she'd never have again was a foolish waste of time. Peter met them at the door, and the warmth from the brightly burning hearth fire pulled them in. Wool rugs hung on the walls and stretched across pinewood floors. 
Dozens of candles flickered in iron candelabras. What a luxury to keep your home so bright after dark, Cora thought. Peter grinned at her. Glad you're here. I don't know how many more times I can be beat at taffel. The wooden game board and intricately whittled pieces sat on a nearby table. Taffel was the Sforenson's favorite game, and while Cora had never matched Peter's skill, she'd spent hours playing against him. She liked watching him concentrate, the wrinkle of his brow as he thought, the way his fingers steepled under his chin as he debated each move. There'd be no time for games now that winter was upon them. Besides, the Winter King probably disapproved of Taffel. Mark ran up and punched Peter in the shoulder. You let us win, I could tell, he shouted. Mark didn't have a quiet voice. His enthusiasm didn't seem to allow for one. Shh, came a voice from a shadowy corner of the room. Honest Forenson sat in a rocking chair with five-year-old Britta fast asleep on her lap, wrapped in a wool blanket. She tried to stay awake until you were home, Anna whispered. But when I started reading, she fell asleep. Cora brushed her sister's sweaty, tangled curls away from her face. Carefully, she picked her up, wincing at how light she felt. Cora's muscles were strong from her kitchen chores, but even still, her sister felt impossibly light. How would she survive these next four months? when most of the villagers lost their extra weight as the food supply dwindled. I'm sorry you had to keep them so late, Greta said. Is there anything I can do for... Anna shook her head. I'm happy to help, and my children love their playmates. It's no trouble. Cora suppressed a sigh of relief. If her mother paid them tonight, then the Nicholsons would go without something tomorrow. Most likely food or maybe there wouldn't be enough money to buy new wool for winter socks. From across the room, she met Peter's eyes. He was studying her with a thoughtful set to his mouth. Thank you, Anna, Greta said. In two years, Mark and Leif will be old enough for apprenticeships, and you'll only have Britta. But thank you, she said again. I couldn't do this without you. Anna squeezed Greta's arm and gave her a look that Cora didn't fully understand although she'd seen it many times on the faces of the wives of Frimsby when they spoke with her mother. It was sympathy mixed with something else. Cora wished she knew what was passing between these women, what messages they shared with just a look. You are doing wonderfully, Anna said quietly. Greta brushed at her eyes and turned quickly away. Come, boys, she said to Mark and Leif, who had started a silent game of wrestling on the floor. Peter touched Cora's arm as she passed. Watch for Draugar, he said. The creatures that walked the woods wouldn't enter the town, but they had snatched villagers who strayed too close to the tree line. If a body was ever found, it was hardly recognizable. We outskirts folk are practically their kin, she whispered back. Cora stepped outside and braced herself for the cold. It wormed its way into every small hole in her cloak, frosty nails pricking her skin. In her arms, Britta stirred and whimpered, burying her face in Cora's neck. As they walked past the common houses, the road narrowed and the homes shrunk into hovels of wood, mud, and thatch that leaned haphazardly like saplings bullied by the wind. In the distance, the town crier's low voice swept along the icy breeze. Not Mall, 
Notmal. All is well, praise the king. Race you home, Mark said to Leif. No, it's my turn, Leif called out, chasing after him. Mark, wait, Mark. Too late, Mark hollered back. Mark, quiet, Greta called softly, but he was too far ahead to hear. Cora shifted Britta's body higher on her waist and watched the twins' gangly forms slipping in and out of the shadows on the road. She wondered if her mother regretted naming the older twin after her husband. Cora didn't want to ask. She didn't want to make her mother cry again. Sometimes when Greta called Mark's name, Cora half expected to turn around and see her father in the room. Maybe her mother liked to be reminded. The Nicholson's house was in the final row before the tree line on the very outskirts of Frimsby. It was little more than four pine walls and a thatched roof sealed with tar that only half-heartedly kept the cold out. There was a shallow fire pit in the corner and a hole in the roof to let out smoke. A wooden screen stood nearby for changing, a gift from the Sforensons when they'd moved in. In the winter, her mother pushed all three straw mattresses, hers, the boys, and the girls, as close to the fire as possible. Four mismatched stools surrounded a wide stump topped with an oak plank that served as a table. The fifth stool had broken, and Mark and Leaf now took turns standing during meals. One chest in the corner held all of their clothing. Cora laid her sister down on the straw mattress and built up a large fire while Greta tucked the boys in. Then she shrugged off her woolen overdress and crawled shivering under the blankets. She rubbed her legs, massaging the sore muscles as she listened to her brothers whispering under the nearby covers. Her body ached for rest, but her mind still spun with the day's stress. If only she could quiet her tumultuous thoughts or summon a sprite to sprinkle sleep spell on her temples. Cora touched the necklace that lay against her skin. A thin leather strap looped through a small hole in a river rock. It was worth nothing, so it was the one gift from her father that they hadn't sold. A week after his death, she'd run to the cliff overlooking the frozen ocean, slipped the necklace on, and begged her father to come back. She'd squeezed her eyes shut and imagined him swimming the fast current under the ice, finding an opening, pulling himself to safety. When she'd opened her eyes, she'd thought she'd seen a flash of color in the woods, the whisper of Cora Quickfoot on the wind. Cora had worn the river rock ever since. She touched it now, stroking the smooth stone between her fingers, and, like a wish granted, fell instantly asleep. Cora woke to the sound of a low murmuring. The fire had died to embers, providing just a whisper of light in the room. Her mother sat at the table, and Cora could just barely make out her words. Crush the berries for the cake. Brush the cake with honey. Warm the chickens and the buns. Cora slid off her mattress and crept over to her mother. Greta was rubbing her palms together over and over and she started when Cora touched her shoulder. Mother, please, you have to sleep, she whispered. Greta looked up at her daughter. The glowing embers cast severe, dark circles around her mother's eyes. She was no longer the pretty woman who worked so confidently in the kitchens. She looked like a draugar, gaunt and withered, crept down from the mountains. Greta snatched Cora's hand and clung to it like a nervous child. 
I can't disappoint the Winter King, she whispered, and Cora's heart beat fast at the fear in her mother's voice. You won't, she promised, and led her mother to bed. Chapter 3 Greta was gone when Cora woke next, and Cora wondered if her mother had slept at all. At least she won't have to worry about another feast until spring's eve, Cora thought. The Winter King only stayed in Hrimsby for four months each year, and the town held a farewell feast the day before he left for his throne across the sea. Cora threw off her covers and hopped from one foot to the next over to the pit to stoke the fire, trying not to let her feet rest too long on the frozen dirt floor. I need to ask Peter for some straw from the stables, she thought, if he can spare any. But Peter would give her straw either way. When the Nicholsons slid into poverty, they'd left most of their friends behind. Cora tried not to blame them. Helping someone the Winter King punished could bring about its own punishment. If the king wills it, she'd heard people mutter as they turned away, averted their eyes, closed their coin purses. But her family's misfortune, or curse, didn't alter Peter's loyalty. And Cora had relied on him when everyone else shut her out. Cora snuggled back into bed next to her sister and stroked her white blonde hair. Footsteps sounded outside their house, men and horses tramping along the dirt road that led out of town and into the forest. There, the path sloped gently upward as it neared the mountains separating Hrimsby from the rest of the world. Deep, brusque voices talked and laughed with no concern for the sleeping villagers. Someone hummed the first few lines of a ballad sung in the great hall, and the others picked it up, matching their stomping feet to its rhythmic cadence. They're off to catch the elk, Cora thought. To start the Winter's Day celebrations each year, the men of Frimsby scoured the forests for a suitable elk to bring back to town. The animal would be treated royally for the next four months, stabled in the best paddock and given more food than many of the villagers. Then on Spring's Eve, the High Alderman would sacrifice the elk on an altar in the atrium of the temple. The blood, spilling in rivulets down the temple steps, would appease the Winter King's wrath and end the curse of winter. Peter was sixteen this year. He was probably one of the men singing outside. She hoped his mother had said a prayer for his safety. Wild animals might run from a band of hunters, but Draugar were already dead, and they feared nothing. Surely the Winter King would heed the prayers of someone as devout as Annas Forenson. Beside her, Britta stirred. She opened her eyes and yawned. I thought I was still at Tante Anna's house. Cora smiled. If you were still at Tante Anna's, you'd be sleeping in a real bed on a feather mattress, and I wouldn't have sore muscles from carrying you all the way home last night. Some of us are trying to sleep, came a muffled voice from the boy's mattress. Leaf's blonde hair stuck straight up from the blankets like wheatgrass. He didn't often wake up cheerful. Cora chucked Britta's doll at him. Not anymore. It's winter's day, remember? Now get up or I'll volunteer you to clean the temple steps after the sacrifice. Together, the Nicholson children hurried down the street to Peter's house as Cora ripped chunks off a loaf of dark bread for them to eat. Later, Anna would bring Cora's younger siblings to the great hall for the feast. Adults and children alike called out, The Winter King is coming, as they passed. Dutifully, Cora replied, Blessed be the day. 
the words stuck in her throat with the dry bread. She skirted the stables and jogged up the road, past the ten stone houses belonging to the aldermancy, Fyodor's council. None of these homes matched Fyodor's in splendor, but they were easily ten times larger than the hovel she lived in, and they had windows. In the kitchen, Cora found her place amidst the flurry of activity. Nearby, her mother called out orders with confidence, so unlike the nervous woman who'd grabbed her hand the night before. Within a few hours, a messenger arrived to announce that the men were back with the elk. There were no casualties during the chase, praised the king. Cora slipped off her stained apron and pulled on her nicest blue wool overdress. Fyodor liked his villagers to wear their finest clothes on winter's day. Maybe the king doesn't care about our hearts, as long as we look devout, she thought as she fastened the shoulder straps with metal brooches. As she passed through the village square and joined the crowd funneling into the great hall, Cora's shoulders relaxed and the tension drained from her limbs. Despite her mother's fears, everything had gone smoothly in the kitchens. Nothing had burned or failed to rise properly. The feast would be a success. The great hall was hazy with smoke and a damp warmth. Long benches lined both sides of a sunken fire pit and faced a raised dais. The villagers crowded onto the benches, packed tight like walruses on an iceberg. Cora slipped inside, just as the aged high alderman climbed the steps to the dais. His back was slightly hunched, and his white beard swept against his black robes as he moved. His eyes were sunken in below his broad, wrinkled brow. Murmurs of awe and delight flickered through the audience, and Cora felt her cheeks go hot. Theodore was supposed to be a holy man, the Winter King's anointed but all Cora saw was a cruel puppet master who listened to the whispers of the Winter King and moved the villagers like impotent dolls, telling them what to do, how to worship, who to fear. He'd nearly ruined their family once before. One day he might decide to finish what he'd started. The ten lesser members of the Aldermancy sat apart from the villagers like stone statues with their hands clasped over voluminous black robes. They were all wrinkled and stern, save for the man on the end whose hair was only starting to gray at the temples. As the youngest member, Alder Matthias was also the friendliest. After Mark's death, he'd made sure Greta didn't lose her position as head cook, despite the rumors that their family was cursed. Cora tried to catch his eye, but he was dutifully watching the high alderman. Fyodor glanced at the back wall where the servants were placing trays of food on the long tables and cleared his throat. It is almost time for the feast. But first, listen to the Winter King's final words, given to our forefathers before our ruler crossed the waters. Fyodor opened a large book, his bony hands shaking as he turned the thin pages with care. Some of the villagers leaned forward so as not to miss their beloved king's words. Cora's stomach twisted, and she turned away. She wasn't about to listen to the Winter King's platitudes. Greta had just arrived, and Cora joined her behind the long tables in the back. How can I help, she whispered. Arrange the chickens on the table, Greta said. Put the fattest ones on trenchers for the aldermancy. Carve the smaller ones for everyone else. While Cora worked, she caught occasional phrases from Fyodor's selection. All-powerful, all-knowing God-King eternally just and loving to his people. Cora snorted. 
then froze when she realized Nils was watching her. Disrespecting the Winter King could earn her the same whipping as the maid. She needed to be more careful. She ducked her head and busied herself with the meat. When Nils finally glanced away, Cora searched instinctively for Peter. He sat with his family in the second row from the front, bent slightly forward to catch every word. Further down the row, a rosy-cheeked girl threw coy glances Peter's direction. A fox fur shawl lay across her shoulders, and embroidered silk embellished the edges of her purple dress. Ribbons wove through the braids in her long auburn hair. Cora looked down at her own blue dress, her nicest one, worn at the elbows and a few inches too short, and an unpleasant tightness gripped her chest. Cora and the other servants finished cutting the chickens just as Fyodor put down the book. Her stomach grumbled loudly. The kitchen staff was required to serve everyone else first. It would be ages before she went through the line. As servants rearranged the benches around the tables and brought trenchers laden with food to the aldermen, the townspeople filed through the back and filled their own smaller plates. Cora refilled platters of soft-cooked vegetables, buttery rolls, and chicken dripping with fat, and tried to ignore the gnawing pain in her stomach. She grinned at Britta, Mark, and Leif as they went by. Finally, when everyone was seated, Fyodor stood up to give the blessing. Cora couldn't help herself. As the villagers closed their eyes and bowed their heads, she reached out, grabbed a small slice of chicken, and popped it in her mouth. Blessed art thou, great king, Fyodor began. Cora gagged and smothered a cough, trying not to disturb the silence. She spat the chicken into her hand and threw it under the table. A sharp, bitter taste stung her tongue and coated her cheeks. Terror welled thick in Cora's throat and slid like a stone into her stomach. The chicken was ruined. <laughs>